book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. The show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, William Kent Kruger returns to chat about The River We Remember. Kent is the New York Times bestselling author of This Tender Land and Ordinary Grace, as well as 19 acclaimed books in the Cork O'Connor mystery series, including Lightning Strike and Fox Creek. He lives in the Twin Cities with his family. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Kent. How are you today? I'm doing quite well, Cindy. And you? I'm doing quite well as well. It's a tad bit warm here in Houston at the moment. So I'm staying inside a lot, but other than that, I'm doing quite well. How about you? Is the weather better there? We are just about to enter uh, the oven here in the Midwest. Temps in the next couple of days are going to hit 100, so we're not anticipating (laughs) great stuff. Yes, I guess we're all just going to be indoors for a while. Well, that's that's where I'm probably going to stay, except I have to do my daily bike ride, but I'll get that in in the morning. My husband and I walk regularly. And we've just been braving the heat, bringing a lot of water, and I have a little fan that goes around my neck, and that helps. But boy, it is hot. Oh, well, you are prepared. I try to be. Well, we spoke before about your wonderful audiobook original, and you told me at the time about The River We Remember. And I was so excited to get a hold of a copy of it. I devoured it, loved it, passed it to my husband. He did the same. What a beautiful story. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I... It's certainly a story that I believe in uh, profoundly and love deeply. Well, before we dive into my questions, will you give me a quick synopsis of The River We Remember, Kent? Sure. It takes place in the summer of 1958 in a small community in uh, southern Minnesota. It opens on Memorial Day, 1958, when the county's leading citizen, a man named Jimmy Quinn, 
is found floating in the Alabaster River, nearly naked, dead from a shotgun blast. This uh, really is truly a mystery, Cindy, uh, because the question at the heart of it is, who killed Jimmy Quinn? But it's really about a whole lot more. I agree with all of that, and I was so curious the entire time what had happened. But what I really loved as well was a glimpse into this time period in America, mid-20th century America in a small town, and everything that was happening and everything that people were grappling with. Well, that was uh, kind of the, that was where I grew up. (laughs) I grew up in small Midwestern towns in the late 50s and uh, early 60s. So this was a time and a place that has always felt very familiar to me. And I always look forward. I have done a number of works set in the past, and I always love going into the past, recalling both what I know and knew about the time, but then also investigating other aspects of those time periods that maybe I wasn't aware of. How did you come up with the idea for this story and then want to write about it? Well, here's the seed of the story. My father, when he was 18 years old, graduated from high school and immediately enlisted in the service and marched off to fight in World War II in Europe. He came back several years later, a man deeply wounded by what he experienced in that war. I I realized years later he was suffering from PTSD, but that was not what it was called then. It was called shell shock or battle fatigue. He was really very like the, the fathers of my friends, men who had gone off to World War II or the Korean War. And when they went away, Cindy, they were just boys. You know, some of them didn't even shave yet. And they came back men wounded in so many ways by the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And all my life, I've wondered, how did these men manage to heal themselves? And also, what about the people they left behind who loved them, their mothers, their fathers, their wives, their sisters, people who prayed for them desperately, I'm sure, the whole time they were gone, but who may in the end actually have lost them. How did these people heal from their woundings? How did everyone manage to heal? And so that was what I wanted to explore in The River We Remember. I always think that those poor souls that had to go away and fight and come back completely wounded, dealing with PTSD, as you said, was called shell shock and other things then, but also the poor souls that welcomed them back. You marry one person or your father is one person or your brother, whoever it is, and they come back a completely different person and how hard it would be on those individuals as well. That was one of the issues I wanted to explore because we think of war uh, really mostly affecting those who go off and and, uh, actually participate in the battles. But the people we leave behind, our loved ones, are also a part of that whole experience, also a part of the great wounding that war does to us all. Absolutely. So was there an inspiration for Brody Dern? Uh, (laughs) I wish I could say yes. He came out of uh, somebody I knew or whatever. In some respects, he he's like my father. Uh, my father came back really wounded in spirit, and uh, and what he had experienced, whatever it was that changed him, he would never talk about. When I was a kid, you know, as kids do, I pestered him for stories about his time in the war, and he refused to talk about it. It was so, I'm sure, horrific for him. 
so Brody is also a man who is keeping his experiences stuffed deep inside himself. But he's a man who has a strong moral center. He, he is trying to do what he believes to be right. And that was certainly my father. I was curious when you mentioned your father earlier, if then aspects of him showed up in Brody Dern. I'm sure I have written about my father before, so he probably has colored a lot of the characters I've created. That makes sense, right? What you know. So you write the longstanding Cork O'Connor series, which both my husband and I love. And I'm always curious how it works for you to decide when you're going to write a standalone, when you're going to write another Cork O'Connor story. What does that look like for you? It's not a tremendously difficult thing for me because typically a story idea has been in my head for a long time, kind of gestating. And finally, it kind of demands to be written. I had a bit of a problem in this regard with The River We Remember. I uh, first took a crack at this more than six years ago. I completed a whole first draft of a novel, and uh, I didn't like it. I thought I had mangled the idea. And although I had a, a contractual obligation to deliver that manuscript, I'd been paid quite a bit of money for it. I told my publisher, I'm not going to give it to you. It's just not right. They were really understanding and uh, and allowed me to step back. And and I don't know, Cindy, what happened over all those years, whether I whether the, the story just needed more time to gestate or whether I just got smarter as a storyteller in the intervening time period. But when I took a look at this manuscript again about a year and a half ago, I decided, I, you know, I heard the voice of the story finally speak to me in a way that was profound enough that I knew I could tell this story truly. And so I had to write it at that point. And that's typically what happens with a standalone. It simply demands to be written. The, the Cork O'Connor stories I love, but I have contractual obligations that I worked very hard to meet in that series. Well, and I'm sure over time, you've really built that series up, developed a variety of the characters. So you're probably always running through ideas for that, jotting them down, thinking, okay, what other situation can I put Cork in now? Well, the Cork O'Connor series, the stories in that series are not as challenging to write as my standalones because, you know, with any long running series, uh, you've established characters that readers are very familiar with. You've established a sense of place that readers appreciate. You have created elements in all of your stories that readers expect. So you have a good sense of the kind of story you're going to have to write. The standalones are very different. They're all different kinds of stories. Although my standalones all deal with very similar themes, the approach to the stories are always very different. Exactly. You have a framework for the Cork O'Connor series. And when you're starting with a standalone, you're starting from scratch. That's it. Exactly. So how much did it change from when you wrote it six years ago and when you pulled it out a year and a half ago and started working on it again? You know, the, the specifics of the plot line didn't change dramatically. What changed was the storytelling itself. I, in that first iteration, simply couldn't hear the narrative voice that the story needed to be told in a really compelling, cohesive, and true way. Once I took a look at it after all of those years had passed, for whatever reason, Cindy, I knew the narrative technique. And that's what really changed how I was going to tell the story. Um, some of the, then the specifics of the characters changed a little bit as the narrative voice dictated. 
but the story as it as it was originally written remained pretty much the same but it was a it was a, a manuscript that was uh, bleeding from a thousand cuts so i went through very very carefully and healed that manuscript i like that analogy your writing is so evocative and so we talked a little bit about the time period but one of the things that did really resonate with me was 1958 america midwestern town does that take a lot of work for you? I know you grew up there and that is kind of the period that you were growing up. But still to be able to get that onto the page where you feel like you're dropping the reader into that time period. Is that something you really have to focus on? It's something I end up doing a great deal of research uh, around despite the fact that you know I I lived through that time period. 1958 summer of 1958 I was 8 years old. And so despite the fact that I'm 72 now, I still remember things pretty well from back then. So the sense of the place, its resonance with me, and I hope with readers, was something I didn't have to work hard at at all. But the details of place, the details of time, the cultural references, I did a lot of research to make sure that those were all accurate. Although I grew up in Ohio in the Midwest, that's where I spent my time, um, Southern Minnesota is very like the Midwest uh, that, that I knew as an adolescent. And so I spent a good deal of time in southern Minnesota just soaking up the, the details of place so that I could make it feel real uh, to the reader and to myself as I wrote it. Well, that's something that I always look for in a book is strong sense of place. And I'm happy when I'm reading a story and I feel like I've been dropped right into it. Well, that's what I shoot for. I had the great good fortune uh, many years ago of hearing Tony Hillerman's editor, a guy named Eamon Dolans. And for those of you who are listening who don't know Tony Hillerman, he was an icon in the mystery genre. He wrote a series that was set in the Four Corners area of the Southwest and dealt significantly with the culture of the Navajo, the Diné. And uh, what uh, Eamon Dolan said about Tony Hillerman's writing was is that he wrote what Dolan's called Domestica Exotica. By that, he meant that Hillerman sets his work inside the confines of the, of the continental United States, so domestic. But he writes about a place people aren't familiar with at all, so it seems exotic to them. And that's kind of my approach to Minnesota. Minnesota exists for so many people in that great flyover area in the center of the country. And I want to deliver this homeland of mine, this place that I love, in a way that will make them feel like after they have finished my novel, they know what it's like to, to be in the Midwest on a humid summer day. You said that so much better than I did. But yes, that is what I like so much about a strong sense of place is you feel like you've visited somewhere you haven't been before or someplace you love if it is a place you've been before. Yeah, every I have to say, Cindy, pretty much every book I write is a valentine to this adopted home of mine, Minnesota. I definitely agree with that, having read a number of them. Oh, good, good. Well, there are a variety of other themes that you address, racism, PTSD, small town life, as we talked about. But the other one that really resonated with me was how certain actions, small or large, can reverberate through families and communities in ways that we never predict. And that really plays out in this story. Well, you know, we all live in the shadow of history, and we all grow up being told stories of, uh, about those who came before us and events that came before us. And so we're all dealing with this idea of what the past was like, what our families were like, what reality was like. And that's not true at all. 
One of the things I set out to do in the novel was to dispel this belief we have always had that following World War II, America entered a new golden period. That wasn't true at all. Uh, we have so many veterans who were struggling with the effects of the war on them, and we were still struggling with bigotry and prejudice. And so it was not a golden time. It was a time like any other where we still had all kinds of demons that we were battling as individuals and as an entire nation. I agree. And I also think when people do certain things, you don't always realize when you make a decision that sometimes that decision will have so many consequences that you never foresaw. Oh, can anybody predict the outcome of any of the decisions that we make? Hopefully the decisions that lead us to a place that's better for us and better for others, but very often that's not the case. And so in the end, we all have to live with regret. And one of the one of the themes that I really wanted readers to take away from the novel was is that it's important when we are dealing with all of this regret and guilt that we begin with forgiveness. We have to forgive ourselves for the trespasses that we have made, and we have to forgive others for their trespasses against us. You know, it goes back to a pretty simple dictum. That's a very valid point. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing The River We Remember? Do you know the character that surprised me the most and, and delighted me was the character of Charlie Bauer, Charlotte Bauer. I, I had imagined her sort of vaguely in the beginning, and the more I wrote her, the more alive she became for me and, and vibrant and exciting and engaging and interesting. And, uh, and in the end, she played a much larger role in the story than I had originally imagined. And I've already had a lot of readers, uh, early readers of the novel, write to me and say Charlie Bauer was their favorite character. That makes me want to ask you, will we see her again? Do you know, I have no plans to have a follow-up novel to The River We Remember. Typically, my standalones are exactly that. They are there to serve the purpose that I have in mind, and then I move on. That makes sense. Well, what about the hardest part in writing this one? The hardest part was, here's the hardest part. The hardest part, Cindy, was six years ago when I chose to shelve the novel, that manuscript, that manuscript that I believed I had mangled. It was difficult for me not to think of that as failure. And it was difficult for me to have the patience to wait until the story spoke to me in a way that would allow me to write it truly. So it was that was the most difficult part of the whole process. Once I came back to the novel and took a look at it uh, during the pandemic when I'd run out of other ideas, the rewrite actually was not a difficult process at all. So it was really a timing issue for you? Well, you know, we could look at it that way. I, I just think, you know, I think I'm on a journey. I think every artist is on a journey. And I just had not reached that place on my journey where the story was ready to be told. That absolutely makes sense. Well, I love the title. I feel like it has several meanings with relation to the story. Can you tell me how it came about? The original title, when I turned it into my uh, editor at Simon & Schuster at Atria Books, was uh, Alabaster. It was named after the river that runs through the town of Jewel, so central to the story. My editor said, ma, not a great title, Kent, which was just fine because I wasn't all that necessarily attached to it. And I happened to be bike riding one day and I, I, wonderful ideas come to me as I'm bike riding. 
And as I was bike riding and I was thinking about this river and I was thinking about the past and the present and the story, the river we remember just came to me. And as soon as it came to me, Cindy, I knew there's the title. It resonates on so many levels with this with this story. It really does. And then you told it to your editor and he was like, yay, that's it. <laughs> that was it. Exactly. <laughs> we were both thrilled. Good, because I know the title can be a really difficult thing. It's an important thing. You know, Hemingway always thought titles were magical. And I, I guess I have to agree with him in a way. A title signals so much about a story. You know, the river we remember really resonates well with the reader in that final passage of the of the book where I talk about how how the past of us all is a different river for every person who's been a part of it. We all remember the past differently, uh, which has certainly been true in my life, in the life of my family. I mean, Cindy, how often have you been at a family reunion and you're all talking about the same event and you all remember it differently, right? Absolutely. Or the way, yes, the way something played out or whatever it is, even a conversation. I agree with that completely because you're only focusing on your part of that conversation or that event or how it impacted you or what you saw happen. And there is always so much a greater whole involved. I think so for sure. Yes, I thought the title really worked on a number of levels. And I love when that happens with the title. You know, the other thing I like about this publication, I love the cover. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you about. The cover is stunning. I think you had just revealed it right before we talked last time. So I asked you about it because I was like, this cover is just beautiful. One of my favorites of 2023. Oh, it's uh, certainly one of my favorites as well. I love, I have loved the covers for most of my books. Um, I'd have to say the covers of my, for my standalones have been truly outstanding. And maybe this is the best of all. It really is stunning. Every time I look at it, I just, I don't know, it makes me smile. It's just beautiful. I think it's compelling. I think a, I think a cover needs to be compelling. It needs to, when it's sitting there on the shelf, it needs to call to the reader. I agree with that. And it also needs to make you think of that book. And so I feel like sometimes there are a lot of covers that are very similar. So I see it and then I have to be like, okay, wait a minute. But with this one, the second I see it, the colors, the view, all of it, I just know it's your book. I am so appreciative of the art department at Atria Books. They just do a stunning job. They do. Well, Kent, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? You know, I have to tell you, Cindy, my favorite author these days is Frederick Bachman. Listeners may know him as the author of A Man Called Ove, uh, which was a huge hit here. But he is a Scandinavian author. He has written things like the uh, the Beartown series and... Uh, Oh, Anxious People. I could name another other novels, but he is one of the most compassionate, humane authors that I know. And every time he comes out with a new book, it's, it's a, I have to buy it today, read it tonight kind of a read. I love several of his books as well. Have you seen the film with Tom Hanks, A Man Called Otto? I have not. You know, I'm, I'm always reluctant to see a film version of a book that I love because how can it, how can it possibly match the, the wonderful storytelling? by an author I love. I do agree with that. And I also am a little anxious usually to see them, but I thought they did a really great job. And I hear the film that was filmed in Sweden that has the subtitles is also amazing. I haven't seen it, but I thought A Man Called Otto was great. Well, maybe I'll have to give it a shot then. He also has a novella about Alzheimer's, a grandfather and a grandson. I think it's called The Days Get Shorter and Shorter or something like that. 
it is so well done, especially if you've encountered somebody or you have a family member or something like that who's dealing with memory loss. It's a really interesting insight and, and useful, I think, if that's one of the things that you are dealing with. And I always refer people to that one. I have not read that one, but thanks for the recommendation. I'll follow up on it. Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, if if that's something that you need to be reading, it's sad. So, you know, it's one of those things that I feel like I'm not sure I'd pick it up unless it was something that I necessarily was dealing with myself to kind of help me understand better everything that was going on. But, you know, not every read has to be uplifting. It can be enlightening as well. And we need that. Absolutely. And I felt that that one definitely was. I think it's every morning the days get longer and longer. Every morning the days get shorter and shorter, something like that. I'll have to go back and find the exact title. I'm sure I can figure it out. Well, Kent, thank you so much for coming back on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I loved getting to chat about The River We Remember. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Cindy. Thanks so much for inviting me. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.